Good evening. Welcome to The Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's Asia tour steers humanity into an extinction-level crisis. The U.S.-China relationship is taking a dramatic turn as Russia announces absolute solidarity with the massive Asian economic power. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have K.J. No, peace activist, writer, and teacher. K.J., welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Global Times writes, on Tuesday night, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi sneakily landed in China's Taiwan island like a thief, detonating the mine she has thrown over the situation in the Taiwan Straits and China-U.S. ties. China has repeatedly warned of how egregious the nature of the visit and how serious the consequences could be. KJ, we're getting some information out of it. What's going on? If you could fill us in what you know so far and your thoughts. Well, I think the first thing to point out is that there were mass protests in Taiwan uh, Island against Nancy Pelosi. You know, people are protesting outside the hotel where she's supposed to be. They're certainly not happy about her visit. And it seems that the, uh, the Taiwanese authorities actually tried to dissuade her from coming, but she insisted anyway. Uh, we also know that there was a bomb scare that was uh, uh, triggered for the airport where we're supposed to uh, arrive. And so we know that there are a lot of people unhappy on Taiwan Island, uh, which is to be expected, but most of them don't want her in their business and triggering uh, potential war. Uh, As for the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, uh, they were massing jets uh, along the coast. There have been reports of mass uh, mobilization of tanks and, and, you know, multiple pictures have been posted of you know massive tank movements on uh, along uh, the various highways, very similar to what we saw before the outbreak of the war in Ukraine. And the PLA has said that they will conduct uh, military exercises, and this is something that has never happened before, on five points around uh, Taiwan Island, uh, completely encircling it. And some of these uh, live fire exercises come very, very close uh, to the coastline. So uh, clearly uh, we can see that uh, 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 Nancy Pelosi has perhaps uh, bitten off a little bit more than she can chew. Uh, the escalation is, uh, you know, is, is happening right now. Talk about what could very well be the miscalculation by Americans without a dramatic, immediate response from China. There are those, before Speaker Pelosi got there, thought that, and it was a reasonable thing to think, that China could shoot her plane out of the sky. Uh, The probability of that was, was very high, and we're glad they didn't do that. But the fact that China hasn't taken direct immediate action right now does not mean that right after she leaves, action could be taken and action can be defined by a lot of different ways. But my point is, a lot of people here could be lulled into this kind of false sense of bravado that since nothing 
at least has happened to date, that that means that China's just bluffing. Yes. Well, certainly I think anybody who thinks that China is bluffing is probably sorely misguided. As for the quote-unquote bravado, I don't think that it's bravado if you have to sneak in, you know, in the middle of the night using a route, uh, you know, through the back door. So I, I think that that is not, you know, a, a very strong position to take. But if we look at what uh, the Chinese are saying, according to the Global Times, uh, they say this will be a comprehensive setback of U.S.-China relations and that China will use this provocative move by the U.S. to irreversibly change the Taiwan Strait situation and speed up the reunification process, and that China will declare the end of U.S. domination of the world order, that Pelosi's stubbornness and selfishness would mark the beginning of the end of U.S. hegemony. Now, when will they uh, do these things? You know, what is the timeline? I think that the timeline will be on China's own uh, uh, it, it will be on uh, China will set its own timeline. Uh, Pelosi has already landed. They did not do anything that, uh, you know, could have endangered her. But in the end, uh, what they know is that this is not about Pelosi. It is about U.S.-China relations and how it is understood by both countries. And by allowing and facilitating Pelosi's landing in Taiwan, the U.S. has essentially signaled that it is no longer respecting the one China principle. Once you say that, all the bets are off. Uh, what were some of their calculations? I want to just, you know, think that if you hear the blogosphere and the pundits, you know, they seem to think that you know, the Chinese have been shocked by massive coordinated Western response to the Ukraine war. And this, has, uh, this will discourage them from waging war against the United States. Well, you know, that's wrong in many ways. Certainly the, the Western responses are weak and toothless and mostly blowback. Uh, and that, uh, that also, from the Chinese perspective, the longer they allow a Ukraine-type situation, that is, a Ukraine-type salami slicing and militarization and the creation of Asian NATO, uh, the harder and more costly it will be for China. And so I think that whatever message that the U.S. is interpreting that the Chinese may have gotten from Ukraine, it's probably the opposite. The other part of it is this. You know, I've been talking about this for a while with friends and just, you know, chatting about it. And this is the way I put it. There's three world powers. One of the world powers has gone to the border of the other two powers, to a borderland, pumping it full of weapons, pumping it full of rhetoric in opposition of the other two world powers. And there's no way that's not going to be set straight. And what I've been saying is those people who have their I support Ukraine flag, they better get an I support Taiwan flag and it ain't going to do them much good because if Russia and China were to come to Puerto Rico and say, well, we don't think Puerto Rico is part of the United States and we're going to visit and pump weapons in there and blah, 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 the U.S. would do the same thing. This is great power politics. The U.S. has overplayed its hand and this is not going to work out well. KJ. I certainly don't think it's going to work out well. And if you let's let's just put it straight, you know, if Puerto Rico were 100 miles within the U.S. coastline, that's the other transposition that we have to understand. But, yes, 
Uh, I think the U.S. has overextended itself and overreached. Uh, at the end of the day, unless we're talking about nuclear warfare, uh, there are two determinants of uh, of what uh, of of uh, you know how wars end up. One is resolve, and the Chinese have a much much greater resolve over Taiwan uh, than the United States, for whom most of the people don't even know where. Taiwan is, and they don't know if it's Thailand or Taiwan. So the Chinese have much greater resolve because it's 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 about its geostrategic uh, security as well as its historical integrity. Uh, the other piece that determines wars is logistics, and you simply cannot win a war if your supply line is uh, seven thousand miles away. Uh, while the other person's uh, other side's supply line is 100 miles away. And so because of these facts, uh, I think that, you know, this is a very, very poor decision. Uh, I know that, you know, the RAND Corporation uh, commissioned by the U.S. military did do an exercise where it considered the possibilities of winning a sea battle. Uh, and CNAS, the neocons who have been fluffing this war, uh, since at least 2008, when Kurt Campbell founded CNAS, uh, think that they can win a war. They think they can sink all of China's warships in 72 hours, as Michel Flournoy uh, boasted or suggested. But the fact is that right now we are looking at the beginnings of an effective blockade around Taiwan Island, massive military escalation. And I really think that, you know, this is a very, very bad situation. I think the U.S. Uh, has a lot of de-escalation that it can and should do. Otherwise, uh, you know, this, this will not end well. Looking at the possible blockade that you've just mentioned and these war exercises you're saying are possibly the beginning of a blockade, what does all of this do to Taiwanese domestic politics in terms of President Tsai Ing-wen? Because if you've got a number of people protesting Pelosi's visit in front of her hotel, is President Tsai concerned about the repercussions domestically uh, after Nancy Pelosi leaves? You know, I think that she is a person like Zelensky or uh, Juan Guaido. Uh, she's uh, essentially a U.S. quizzling puppet. Uh, I do not think that she has the interests or the concerns of the Taiwanese people at heart any more than the current leadership has the interests and concerns of uh, the U.S. working class here. Uh, so I think that if it, even if it damages her people and her country, uh, she will you know, stick to her guns because that is her... Uh, her job, that is her, her mission. Uh, and the, the, you know, the, um, the comeuppance will come in 2024, uh, which, is, I, which is why I think the U.S. would like for, you know, a kind of kinetic engagement as mapped out in Elbridge Colby's uh, uh, war doctrine. Uh, they would like uh, this provocation to happen sooner rather than later. You know, to be blunt, Scott Ritter, we had him on, and he was pretty straightforward. He said, I think they're going to let her come. I think they're going to let her leave. 
and boom, they're going to move on Taiwan. I mean, it's pretty, you know, you know, Scott, he's pretty straightforward with those things. But he's been right about a lot of things. He's missed a few. Your thoughts on that? You know, I think he could be very, uh, you know, I think he could be very, um, you know, correct. I mean, I wouldn't, I would not bet against Scott because uh, the odds have always favored him. And the thing is that uh, the Chinese now will move on their timeline. Uh, they, you can see the preparations happening, but they will move on their timeline. Uh, and whatever happens, uh, it, it is certainly not what the U.S. or uh, Pelosi, uh, certainly not any good effect uh, that Pelosi could have uh, envisioned or wanted. Uh, what about this responsible statecraft piece as Pelosi Taiwan visit looms, Menendez bill would gut one China policy. You've got Menendez and Lindsey Graham that are trying to restructure U.S. policy towards Taiwan. Your thoughts here? Well, essentially, they're saying that the one China uh, policy is dead, except for the slightest, you know, uh, verbal uh, pretensions and acrobatics. You know, essentially, it is uh, the equivalent. Uh, it's the policy equivalent of uh, Pelosi's uh, action. That is, it is, you know, a, a declaration of hostilities against uh, China. And, you know, let me just give you a really, really weak analogy. You know, the basic understanding is that there is only one China. Uh, Taiwan Island's region belongs to China, and the PRC is the legitimate government of all of this one China. And that's a basic global understanding at the UN since 1971. It's the understanding of 181 countries, and it's the understanding of the United States itself. Now, even for the Taiwan authorities, there's only one China. Uh, but So the, the one China principle, and I'll give you a weak analogy, it's like a marriage vow. Uh, you know, rightly or wrongly, for whatever reason, in 1979, the U.S., quote unquote, divorced the ROC on Taiwan and married the PRC in China. In this diplomatic relationship, there is only one recognized partner, partner in the relationship. It's, you know, it's like a monogamous relationship. You cannot cheat and pretend that the relationship is ongoing. And so this is essentially a, a, a verbal declaration of, uh, of, of divorce. Uh, sorry, it's a written declaration of divorce. And from there on, uh, you, know, uh, you know, all the bets are off. Uh, you know, it's, it's essentially a declaration of open warfare. You know, KJ, I'll say this. I don't think it matters. I think they have effectively done that with this Pelosi visit. So I don't think the Chinese are going to care one way or the other what they put in writing. What's done is done. Yes, I agree. What's done is done. I mean, I think it's all uh, highly coordinated. Uh, and anything that Pelosi has been doing has, you know, was understood in the larger context as a, uh, as a coordinated action. But there are provisions in there where it says that de facto uh, Taiwan is uh, uh, is a member, you know, is like a non-NATO ally, uh, uh, but is 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 an ally of NATO, and there are massive appropriations, and there are also massive quote-unquote consequences for China uh, that are written into the bill. So it's uh, a formula for massive escalation 
and seriously an act of policy madness. We've been talking with K.J. No. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. President Biden authorizes another $550 billion for weapons to Ukraine as the U.N. chief warns about the threat of nuclear apocalypse. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Dr. David Walalu. He's an author and international security analyst. Dr. Walalu, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Pleasure to be with you. He's also the host of the Geopolitics in Conflict show on YouTube. Great show. I never miss an episode. Um, Before we get into the Ukraine-Russia stuff, let's get to the story of the day. Dr. Walalu, let's get your take on what's happening with Nancy Pelosi. She has landed. There was talk about possible actions. Your thoughts on what happened? How do you see this? Well, uh, the idea of Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan, it's nothing new. Uh, It's just the timing of it as to why now. Because remember, just for your listeners to understand, uh, 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 Newt Gingrich went there back, uh, what, some 25 years ago. So the question that we need to ask is, why now? And who's behind the trip? So why now is because in the the U.S. we have the midterm elections coming up soon. Why did China say that it will take severe measures if... She decided to go to Taiwan because China also is having upcoming elections soon in which, the, in which Xi Jinping is going to run for a third term. So both countries have the reasons for why they're saying what they're saying. But now that she is there, it becomes a question of how China is going to move forward with this. What does it mean now for the future of the U.S.-China relations? Do you see these uh, announced live-action military drills as being the precursor to a naval embargo around the island? And do you also see, as some are indicating, this could be the first stage of China invading Taiwan after Pelosi leaves? Uh, I would not go with the second possibility of the invasion itself, because uh, there is one thing that your listeners need to know. China will not, and I say this, China will not rock the boat, in other words, influencing the global system that made it rich and strong and so forth. Because this is what it will mean if China engage in a military or a hot war, that is. The question becomes is, what will the United States do, given our policy? Usually it's an ambiguous one towards Taiwan, But we have, we, the United States, made it clear to Taiwan behind closed doors that your independence or declaration of your independence is a red line, which means if you do, you are on your own. Now, the question becomes is, will the United States come to Taiwan's aid? Will the American people even support something like that, given what's going on in Ukraine? given what took place in, in, in Iraq, and given what took place in Afghanistan. So all this comes at the expense of the American citizen. And this is something that 
the American public will have to have a say into it. Speaking of Ukraine, President Biden on Monday authorized an additional $550 million in military aid for Ukraine, marking the 17th arms package the U.S. has pledged since February 24th of this year. You know, I have to be honest and just you know, anecdotally, I hear regularly people I know who are not involved in politics or evaluating or analyzing politics complain about the money going to the Ukraine project as our economy slips into recession or worse. Dr. Walalu. And don't forget, Garland, just for your listeners to know, don't forget the $4 billion that we are donating to Ukraine to subsidize the expenditure of their government. Because the reason why, uh, and I couldn't agree more with your assertion regarding how an ordinary citizen now is kind of question. It's common sense. You know, with all the money we are giving to Ukraine, well, that money has to come from somewhere. Well, where it's coming from? It's coming from the program that was supposed to help the American people. It's coming from the expenditure now that we are seeing the high prices in gas, in commodities, in food, and so forth. You know, and American citizens have the right to ask where their tax money is spent on. How much can we give? To Ukraine. When do you say enough is enough? That's like in your family, for example. You're going to help your uh, family member one time and second time, but third time you're going to say that's enough. You're going to have to figure this out. And that's exactly where the problem is. And now we are seeing the impact right here at home with the recession, even though the administration is saying there is no recession. And usually there is when you have two consecutive downturns in the economy into two quarters consecutively, that means that's a sign for recession. We're seeing it in Europe a big time. When you get to Germany now, asking, for example, residents in the city of Hanover to cut down on their hot showers and to turn off the lights, to turn off the lights and so That's the beginning of the recession in Europe. It's coming a big time. What signal does it send to you when you have Antonio Gutierrez, the chief of the UN, warning of global conflict as it relates to the Ukraine war. And I guess now you also have to throw in with Mm -hmm. possibilities of conflict with China and Taiwan. He says one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. And I would say those miscalculations have already been already been made. Uh, You're right. You're right, uh, Wilmert. The miscalculation was already done when the proxy war started in Ukraine, when we kind of fueled the fire with certain provocations. And this is why I'm looking at this, like what just took place in Taiwan. It's nothing more than just a provocation straightforward. Now, can we live with the consequences of those provocations? Because some of these countries, and I'm not saying we should be scared of the Russians or the Chinese or any country for that matter, but we need to have some pragmatism that is included into our foreign policy uh, deliveries and so forth, understanding what the ramifications could be. So this, the uh, UN Secretary General, he is right. A miscalculation could, will, it's like when you fire a, a gun. Once that bullet is out, there is no way of bringing it back. And that's exactly where are we headed with this kind of provocations. And uh, if, if I may add quickly here, this one has also to do with the test that the Chinese just conducted uh, three days ago with a special type of missile. That missile 
is untraceable, which means it can be just nuclear tipped and you will have no idea where it end up uh, hitting its target. Well, let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the issue of retaliation, do you think, because I think this has to be a consideration, there could be some significant economic retaliation. And I don't mean they wake up tomorrow and say, you can't buy any more X or this or that. I mean, a more, you know, based on Chinese culture, a more complicated, in-depth chess piece kind of economic maneuver as opposed to, you know, just an economic pain and punishment. And that's what I see personally, and this is my personal opinion. That's what I see as to how China is going to end up folding Taiwan back into the mainland. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's not through the, the, the bullets of their uh, uh, rifles and so forth or missiles or whatever. No, no, no. It's going to be through economic means because China will be in a position to really put a major economic blockade on the islands. And we all know what it means when you are starving a nation, per se, or a country, or whatever you want to call it, uh, what's going to be happening. That's usually how uh, China is going to approach this. This is why you are seeing China's coordination with the regional countries, like the Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, ASEAN countries. Uh, That's for the reason to ensure that the access to the waterways will remain open, of course, but also to ensure uh, that those countries should not allow American forces to be placed there. And here is the reason why Nancy Pelosi made the stops in, in, uh, in uh, Japan and in South Korea. That is the reason why, because should, they be, should, should there be a hot war between U.S. and China, which I don't foresee at any time right now, that she wanted to ensure or to elicit the support of the South Korean and the Japan. That leads me to the next concern. And the next concern will be, we have 40,000, 47,000 to 50,000 troops in South Korea, and we have a sizable presence in Japan. What will North Korea do? Because North Korea works under China, and China could just tell North Korea, here is what we want you to target. And this is where I see the big concern moving forward with those dynamics. That's a frightening scenario that you've just articulated when you throw North Korea into the mix. Getting back to an economic blockade of Taiwan, Mm -hmm. if China were to decide to go that route, uh, does that give Biden kind of the out that he's looking for because it's not a hot conflict It doesn't have much sexy appeal on the front page of the paper. And that's kind of a good way for Taiwan to get off the front page of the New York Times. But but the thing, this is only a big if, because China knows it does not want to risk. Because remember, where major uh, 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 China's trade economy is with the U.S. China will not want to risk. In fact, let me quickly change my question. Yes, sir. This is how I should have started my question. What does the United States do if China engages in an economic blockade of Taiwan? Does the United States try to forcibly interrupt it by sending in warships and trying to clear passageway to the island? 
or does the United States take another approach in trying to disrupt an economic blockade of China over Taiwan? That's how I should have asked the question. Yeah, well, that was a that was a strategic question, Walmart. <laughs> well, I'm dealing with you. <laughs> it's an interesting one. It's an interesting one. But the thing is, what the U.S. will do? What the U.S. will not be able to sanction China, first of all. Why? Because we import about 80% of our products from China. So it will, it will be suicide, economically speaking. China, on the other hand, if it's going to do this, you know, if they're going to do it, they're going to have to do it on certain key products that Taiwan depends on from outside. And yes, you are absolutely correct in your assessment that U.S. will provide safe passage by having its naval assets, meaning U.S. naval assets, in the area. The question will become is, will other countries in the region, like the Philippines, like Malaysia, like Indonesia, Singapore, and all that, will they allow U.S. naval assets to be on their territories? Because remember, China has already mentioned this way back that any country that will allow its territory to be used as a launching pad will become a target. So it, it's a very delicate, it's going to be a delicate dance, except that we don't know how it's going to end up. One last thing real quick. Mm-hmm. I read that Russia's now saying that they fully support China in this. What do you think about the Russia-China alliance? Does this make it grow even stronger? Does it become a military alliance or is it a de facto one already? One minute. It is a de facto one because it depends again how the talks between the U.S. and Russia regarding the START, the Strategic Armor Reduction to- uh, Treaties, how it's going to go moving forward. And that depends on what they decide on. But uh, because U.S. has more deals with Russia than it does with China. But the geopolitical landscape has shifted, and I will not be surprised that both Russia and China will enter into some sort of limited military strategic alliance. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. We've been talking with Dr. David Walalu. He's an author and international security analyst and host of Geopolitics in Conflict. Thanks, Dr. Walalu. It's a great show. Great show on YouTube. Uh, I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The U.S. is in a recession that may spiral out of control. Also, the EU is facing a potential energy collapse, as Joseph Burrell admits that some nations may be without gas this winter. And German chemical firms warn of a production chain collapse. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Dan Lazar. He's an investigative journalist and the author of a number of books, including America's Undeclared War. Dan, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Uh, Thanks for having me. Well, you know, I think you know by now the subject of the day is Nancy Pelosi in Taiwan. Your thoughts, Dan? Uh, It's just the the biggest uh, foreign policy follow-up in memory. I mean, it, number one, it's extraordinarily dangerous. Number two, the, it's quite clear that uh, the U.S. and China are on a collision course. Um, and, uh, and that unless something is done, some serious action is taken, there is going to be, you know, a, a real crack up. 
uh, a military confrontation. Um, and uh, and the, the Biden administration's attempts to wash its hands, and the, the administration clung to the fiction that this is Pelosi's decision alone. There was nothing it could do, and in any event, China had had no right to uh, to to get upset. This is just nonsense through and through. I mean, Biden could have stopped Pelosi any time he wanted to. She's on a military plane, for God's sake. He could order that plane to turn around. He could order the USS Ronald Reagan, the aircraft, ca- aircraft carrier that I believe is now in the South China Sea, to reverse course and get the hell out of there to show he doesn't want a confrontation. He could have appealed to, to Pelosi strongly and publicly, telling her not to go. But he didn't. Instead, he sort of laid down and allowed this to happen. And a military confrontation between the U.S. and China is is not going to be a a, a, a a walk in the park. Russia has a navy. I mean, I'm sorry, China's navy is is 20 percent bigger than America's. It has it has several hundred nuclear warheads and a hundred ICBMs capable of reaching the U.S. mainland. It's fairly bristling with hyper, uh, hypersonic missiles that are known as carrier killers because of their ability to wreak havoc on the, on the high seas. It has, it's able to take out U.S. communications uh, satellites. Um, the U.S. has two air bases within 500 miles of Taipei. China has 39. This is according to the New York Times. So if there is a, 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 a battle, like conventional military battle, the U.S. and, and countless uh, uh, war games uh, conducted by the, the Pentagon show this, the U.S. will be defeated. And that's, and that's assuming optimistically that this stays in the realm of conventional warfare. I mean, the worst case scenario is we'll go to something worse, and then God help us all. One thing you didn't mention, China has 80 submarines. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, to your point, they've got a a very large Navy. They have reportedly today levied new import bans on more than 100 Taiwanese products. They have encircled the island and are now engaged in live fire exercises. So... People thinking that the fact that China has not shot her plane out of the sky or done something even more aggressive is some type of show of weakness. But I I think people don't really understand how many cards China has to play. Yeah, exactly. It's not weakness. China is just getting started. We have no we we have no idea what lies down the road. But but the but the Biden administration has just has just escalated things dramatically. So I think it's a it's a pretty sure bet that China will respond with an escalation of its own. Uh, And this is just this is the wrong road to be on. It's completely crazy. Incorrect. The U.S. is the U.S. is 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 hopping the rails. It shouldn't be behaving this way. It should be trying to calm things down instead of pumping them up. 
Uh, Dan, if things weren't bad enough, what's going on here, there is disaster. There is economic disaster very, very close over the horizon in Europe. Joseph Burrell says the EU may run out of gas during the upcoming winter season amid supply shortages. Europe is facing a perfect storm. Energy prices are up. Economic growth is down and winter is coming. Of course, he left out the fact that they sanctioned the people that provide their gas. I mean, Dan, we're looking at people literally, because it's cold up there in many parts of Europe, literally freezing to death because of the these absurd sanctions and because of their policies of their leaders. Dan Lazar. Well, yes. I mean, first of all, bear in mind that it was the U.S. NATO which provoked this war by by ignoring all kinds of warnings that they were crossing red lines, you know, completely, you know, trampling Russia's security concerns. I mean, as we know, as, if the shoe was on the other foot, if Russia was doing was behaving similarly with in, in Mexico, the U.S. would would be going crazy. In fact, this is what the Cuban Missile Crisis was all about in 1962. And the U.S. took the strongest line in defense of its own security concerns to the point, to where it, point that it actually threatened a, a nuclear exchange. Now, now, the U.S. unless barged ahead, provoked this war, and I'm not defending the war, but certainly provoked it, which is now provoking a major economic crisis. And yes, Germany is facing a, a, a wholesale industrial shutdown. This is the most advanced manufacturing economy in the world. And they're going to take a real body blow. And ger- the German voters will not be happy. That is, a, that is a, an absolutely sure thing. Uh, and remember, governments have already falled, fallen in, uh, in Britain in Italy and Bulgaria, and, uh, and in France, Macron has been severely weakened. So by the time next winter arrives, we'll see a lot more of this kind of stuff, and we'll see something similar in the U.S. with the midterm elections. In fact, that goes right to my next question, because if you look at the impact that this is having on Germany's economy, and we understand that we're already in a supply chain crisis, that is contributing greatly to the inflationary pressures on the U.S. economy. And the U.S. is, as RT writes, is in a recession and it's worse than you think. There are so many pressures that are impacting this reality at the cause lies at the feet of the United States. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's not all due to the war. I mean, the, the reset, inflation was wrapping up from early 2021, in fact, just virtually the moment that, that Joe Biden entered office. Um, and, uh, and, but the war has certainly intensified the process. There's just no doubt about that. Right, um, right. And, uh, and, yeah, and, 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 yeah and, the, and the U.S., therefore, is driving this, to, is making it more severe. Uh, and that just is insane. There's another article. UK domestic energy bills could mount to over $4,395 a year this winter, according to Consultancy Cornwall's Insights Prognosis. Many British economists are now saying that the UK's energy costs are going to rise to a point where the average citizen cannot afford them. 
You had Brexit happen, which certainly, you know, was going to be some economic problems. Combine that with the Russia sanctions, and they're actually saying that the Russia sanctions are piling on this. Your thoughts on what's coming in the U.K., Dan? It sounds like social unrest. Well, it certainly does. Uh, and if Liz Truss becomes oh, prime minister, I mean, yes, I mean, Liz Truss essentially is as mapped out for herself a, a super hawkish uh, position in which, you know, which Britain is, not, is no longer America's uh, lapdog. It's America's guard dog barking and snarling. I mean, Liz Truss wants to, wants to turn the G8 into a second NATO. She wants NATO to get involved in the Western Pacific. She is all gung-ho about, about building up a global military machine. Uh, this is just complete madness. And she's also, you know, she's also, uh, you know, anti-tax. So, so I mean, so, so the, the British will be facing, you know, sky-high fuel bills. They'll be facing a, a real plunge in their standard, standard of living. And they'll be also be, be have a prime minister who was devoted essentially, she said she has said it over and over again, to a Margaret Thatcher style economic policy. And it's going to be absolutely explosive. And tying this back to the last question I just posed or statement that I made, this to a great degree is a supply chain problem, which means that the actions taken by the European Central Bank in terms of raising interest rates and the action taken by the U.S. Fed raising interest rates aren't going to relieve the pressure on the inflationary problem. I actually disagree. I think that, that raising interest rates will have an impact. In fact, it may be already having an impact. I mean, uh, oil is off $25, $27 a barrel from its peak in, I think, March of $120 a barrel. Um, uh, uh, gasoline prices uh, have fallen about, what, 15%, 12%, 15%. I mean, Joe Biden is thrilled. It may, you know, they're still much higher than they were. A, a year ago, but still, that's a significant uh, drop. Um, uh, and I and I think the supply ch- chain uh, uh, shortages are really the result. I, I believe they're the result of inflation more than they are the cause. Uh, um, because I, I, when you have in, inflation, play, plays havoc with with deliveries. If you have a widget on your hand. It often makes more sense, economic sense, to hold onto it rather than, than to sell it. And when you have these long, complicated supply chains, that means the prices are appreciating so rapidly that many parts of the supply chain are find themselves holding onto goods for longer than they, they normally would, and rather than passing them down the line. And this leads to, to bottlenecks, to shortages. And we have shortages popping up everywhere. I mean, from a uh, from sanitary napkins to uh, to you know chili peppers uh, to a lot of things, and um, the uh, I think those are not due to bottlenecks. I think it's really the opposite that the bottlenecks are due to mounting inflationary uh, pressures. 
we'll have to have that conversation on another show. Go ahead. Sure, sure, yeah. sure, sure. Thanks a lot, Dan. You've been listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. We've been interviewing Dan Lazar. He's an investigative journalist. He's an author of America's Undeclared War and other books. You can find them online wherever books are sold. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The White House has named a monkeypox czar, if that's the right word. Also, D.C. schools are expanding their vaccine mandate. Joining us to discuss this and more is Dr. Yolanda Hancock. She's a board-certified pediatrician and obesity medicine specialist. Dr. Hancock, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. The White House on Tuesday named a federal emergency management agency, that's FEMA, official as coordinator for the monkeypox response as the virus spreads in the United States. The naming of a national coordinator for the monkeypox response, Robert Finton, comes as the Biden administration looks to step up its response to the virus. And actually, Dr. Hancock, I understand that we are in D.C. We're kind of in a ground zero as there are very high monkeypox numbers around Washington, D.C. Absolutely. So the United States leads the globe in terms of monkeypox cases and the District of Columbia leads the country in terms of the number of monkeypox cases. And so clearly um, we we have a transmission issue when we lead the globe. Monkeypox did not start the United States, but we're certainly uh, well in the lead position. It's reported that the moves made by the administration are being criticized for not having moved fast enough with the first case having been confirmed in May. Your thoughts on the administration's response to this, and does this indicate that they learned or did not learn anything from the COVID situation? I completely agree with the fact that it's a day late and a dollar short. We should have had provisions in place when we first heard about the increased number of monkeypox across the globe, before it even arrived here in the country, we should have made provisions to know how people could get tested, what the vaccine uh, process was going to be, how clinicians can better prepare for the potential onslaught of monkeypox cases to educate the public on how monkeypox is transmitted. None of that information was readily available back in May when we saw this moving across Europe, when we saw it moving in other countries. It isn't until it is well roosted within our own hen house that we decide to take action. And it's no different than what we saw happen with COVID. Back in October, November, we saw uh, cases of uh, a mystery respiratory illness. In China, my little brother, who has nothing to do with health, he actually works in the gaming industry, in the video gaming industry, he sent me a text back in November of 2019 saying, hey, he called me Nandra. Nandra, do you know anything about this this illness in China? It may be something we need to be concerned about. And he has no public health background. So if my little brother knows to sort of raise a red flag in November, October of 2019, why is it until we've taken the lead 
in this country that we decide to take action. And I don't blame necessarily just the federal government, This just the nature of our country. We are always in a position of proact- of reactivity as opposed to being proactive. And the challenge is that we end up trying to p- play a game of catch-up with these infectious diseases that don't play by the rules. We see now that children are infected with monkeypox. As we're sending off our little ones, I've seen pictures of my children's or my friend's children going off to school with no mask mandate in place. We know that close contact is how monkeypox can be spread. We've seen significant spread of things like Coxsackie, which causes hand, foot, and mouth disease from close contact with children. Chickenpox, if they're not vaccinated. Monkeypox will be no different if we do not get ahead of it. Really quickly, if I could follow up on that. Sure. If you put your public health expert hat on, Mm -hmm. is the untimely response due to politics getting in the way of public health response? I believe it's it's a combination of politics and priorities. Our country, unfortunately, has never prioritized public health to the point where we invest in strong infrastructure to have an immediate and quick response. There's something to be said for the continent of Africa and the countries there within. The ministers of health have a quick response. We saw the outbreak of Marburg virus. Two individuals have lost their lives, but you're not hearing an insane amount of numbers of Marburg virus cases now happening because the minute a case shows up, their public health infrastructure turns on. They don't wait and see. They don't look to see what's going to happen. They immediately activate those systems. And I strongly believe it's just a lack of prioritization really at baseline of health in this country. We have a a very capitalistic system that drives health care decisions and access to health and dealing with epidemics and pandemics is no different. Uh, Something I wanted to ask you about, you know, I've read a lot that monkeypox has manifested itself quite heavily in the gay community. And I'm just going to read to show how confusing it is. Let me read three headlines to you. One is, no, monkeypox is not considered a sexually transmitted disease. The next one says, if monkeypox spreads through sexual contact, is it an STD? And the last says monkeypox is almost certainly sexually transmitted. So what do we need to know about that particular thing? And is there anything so far that you can comment on that? Absolutely. What we know is that the original cases of monkeypox in this country were within the MSM, the men who have sex with men population. That does not mean that it is the primary community in which monkeypox is infecting and affecting. It just so happens that that's where the case started. Is as if we were to say with COVID that COVID is only limited to Asian populations when we know that that was not the case. And it was actually misleading at the beginning of the pandemic that COVID was only linked to fam- who, uh, people of Asian descent, people who traveled to Asian countries, and then it's transferred over to the elderly when we know that that is not the case now that we look at the numbers. It's the same thing with monkeypox, simply because the cases originated in the MSM population does not mean that they are the only ones at risk and that it is only spread through sexual contact. We know that monkeypox is spread through bodily fluids. It just so happens in this population, the bodily fluid was likely sexual bodily fluids. But we know it transmits through saliva, respiratory droplets, contact with the uh, vesicles, the blisters themselves, or if there is any, if someone has sores on their arms and they lean on an armrest and you come right behind them and lean on that same armrest, there is the risk of you acquiring monkeypox. From a respiratory standpoint, it isn't as easily transmissible as COVID is, but spending a lot of time in shared airspace with someone who has monkeypox in close proximity, you are at risk. And you just mentioned seeing pictures of kids going to school without masks 
and there's an article, D.C. schools expand COVID vaccine mandate unlike most other districts. So talk about the fact that D.C. students who are 12 and older must be vaccinated. I don't think that masks are mandated. So talk about that from a national perspective. It's interesting. D.C. certainly has one of the most strict approaches to the requirement for the COVID-19 vaccine for children 12 and older. Uh, When you look at the numbers right now, only 59% of children 12 and older have received both doses of the vaccine. Those numbers are either percentages even smaller in the District of Columbia, particularly among communities of color. And although I feel strongly about children being vaccinated against COVID, my biggest concern is for families who are continuously um, hesitant and concerned about getting this vaccine. What does that look like in terms of their children returning to school? How are they going to account for families who simply refuse to get their children vaccinated? That question has been raised on several occasions without a direct answer. So that's my biggest concern. The second is I expect there to be legal challenges. The vaccine for our youngest population is still under the emergency use authorization, and usually vaccine requirements are housed under the full FDA approval category. So what we have seen previously with mandates like this is that families will pursue a lawsuit to block it. We have not heard any word of that yet, but I don't uh, underestimate the capacity of those who strongly are against vaccines, either transferring over to doing homeschooling, which further divides the educational gap, or you'll see more families in court suing DCPS because they refuse to get their children vaccinated. President Biden recently had COVID, and there's a Washington Post article, Biden COVID case highlights confusing CDC guidance on ending isolation. President's rebound infection shows usefulness of tests, but agency describes rapid tests as optional. Additionally, I want to throw this in there, the Paxlovid. There has been significant data to show that some people, I don't really know the percentages, but some people who take this new Paxlovid get a rebound I don't know, infection, it seems the second time they don't seem to have symptoms, but they do test positive, Mm -hmm. which means they could spread the virus again. But at any rate, your thoughts on the whole Biden thing and and all of this stuff. Sure. So in terms of Paxlovid, we know that 5 to 10 percent of individuals who take the medication will have what we call a rebound viral load, meaning that the viral, the amount of virus in the body goes back up after you stop the medication such that they're able to test positive and still transmit COVID-19. That's why it is important uh, against what the CDC recommends that you test one after you have COVID, even within that five day period of time. Because five days is the minimum amount of time that it takes for the body to clear the virus. It takes between five to ten days, on average seven days, which is why when I had COVID, I tested on the fifth day, the sixth day, and the seventh day. And on the seventh day, as God would say, I was COVID negative. That's what the CDC should have recommended, but there were no testing recommendations from the CDC. And you have to remember, CDC made these recommendations at the peak of the Omicron wave, where had we still stayed at home for seven to 10 days, it would have crippled hospitals, the airline industry, the grocery stores, everything would have been shut down, given how much COVID was spreading and how many days people would have been out of work. I honestly think that the CDC really did put politics and profits over people when they made this recommendation and with limited testing capacity. My hope is that they will reevaluate the data and based on what President Biden did, make a testing requirement or at least a recommendation, because as of right now, employers are compelling people to still show up for work, even when they test positive, given what the CDC is now laying out. So with what you just explained, 
and Washington, D.C., one of the few districts to make COVID vaccine a requirement for attending school. The New Orleans public school system added the vaccine to its list of required immunizations. As we look at the rate of the numbers increase, mm-hmm. are we heading back to where we were like a year and a half ago? That's an excellent question. We know with this current variant that it can evade or escape the immune response that is developed either because of natural infection from previous COVID-19 infections and from the current vaccine that we are using right now, which is why this bivalent or dual component vaccine in the fall is going to be so critically important. It's going to be up to the administration to make sure that the Omicron composed vaccine is available to our children. Otherwise, in the middle of a BA.5 and BA.2.75 wave, children are still going to get sick. To me, you have to take this from a layered approach. It can't just be go get the kids vaccinated without there being other provisions in place, such as masking. If there are religious exemptions, if there are medical exemptions for children, masking is going to be critical to protect them from getting sick. And we know that the reinfection rate is significantly high right now with these new variants. It has to be a layered approach. It can't just be one solution. There have to be multiple layers to it. And I think the fact that I forgot three to six months, I think the efficacy of the vaccine drops dramatically. Then that becomes, well, what do you say to the kids? Hey, okay, in December, you got to get vaccinated again. And does you do that for 12 straight years? You know, there's a lot of questions here. Exactly. Every year, you got to get two vaccinations a year for 12 years. There could be issues. So at any rate. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Dr. Uh, Yolandra Hancock. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The Israeli army has shot dead a Palestinian teenager during a raid on the Jenin refugee camp in the north of the occupied West Bank. Also, a rift is emerging between the U.S. and the EU as the Biden administration seems to be rejecting any possibility of rejoining the Iran nuclear deal. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Laith Marouf. Laith is a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. The youth, identified as 17-year-old Dirar al-Kafrini, was killed late on Monday when the shooting broke out between Israel Army and Palestinian fighters in the camp, according to Al Jazeera. Your thoughts on this, Laith Marouf? Yeah, I mean, this was an operation um, by the occupying forces intended to enter the Jenin refugee camp and arrest some of the uh, uh, resistance uh, forces leaders. In fact, uh, by the end of the night, uh, this was a kind of the skirmish that uh, the Israelis designed in Janine was to distract a little bit from one of the uh, uh, villages right beside uh, the town of Janine, uh, where uh, they entered the home of a uh, leader of the Palestinian uh, Islamic Jihad and uh, took him to Israel. So right now we know the uh, Islamic Jihad in uh, Gaza have called all its forces into mobilization, uh, not only because of the uh, you know the killing of the youth, 
but also because of the napping of their um, representative from the Jinin area. And, and this, of course, is all in attempt to subdue the West Bank that has been up in flames for the last six months. It's interesting in reading the Al Jazeera story that the occupying army said that they arrested two suspects and that they were met with live fire, so they fired back. I think it's important for people to know that it's not against international law for those in Gaza to use live fire to protect themselves against invasions by the occupying forces. Yes, and definitely this uh, in the West Bank uh, in the last six months, Islamic Jihad and Hamas have activated their military forces. And this is now, um, you know, bringing the Palestinian Authority that has been collaborating with the Israeli occupiers uh, under fire. Uh, they are not able to deliver on what their masters, uh, their Zionist masters want, which is to uh, round up any Palestinian resistance in the West Bank. And any move that the Israelis are doing by invading uh, places like Jenin uh, is only uh, emboldening the resistance to take more military actions. And, and in, you know, if you read the uh, Zionist media in the last two days, they're, as they are worried of the attack by Hezbollah on the uh, gas platforms in the Mediterranean, they're worried that if they enter a confrontation with Hezbollah, that actually the West Bank will be the soft belly uh, of Israel, where where all the uh, resistance will rise up in the in the right moment. And where are we as far as the controversy? Has anything new happened regarding the issue of the gas fields? Yeah, I mean, uh, Hochstein, the American negotiator, uh, is still in Beirut. Now he's, it's the second day he's here. Uh, yesterday, during his meetings with the Minister of Energy, uh, in front of the media, the Minister of Energy said that he will not be rejecting the offer presented by Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah and Iran to supply uh, Lebanon with 10 hours uh, of uh, free electricity, uh, the fuel that is needed to run the uh, electric uh, factories, uh, generators, the, the two big ones that are in the country here. Uh, so, uh, and Hochstein, uh, right in front of the media, said, well, it's not in the authority of the Minister of <laughs> Energy of Lebanon to uh, to take a decision like this, and it has to be the prime minister. So here we have a negotiator on behalf of the United States that's here to deal with the issue of the gas fields in the Mediterranean, trying to intervene in the electricity supply of uh, Lebanon and, uh, you know, over overruling uh, the Minister of Energy of the country. What, I, what I'm trying to say here is that, uh, you know, in terms of the negotiating as a whole for the gas fields, uh, the uh, Israelis have now, if you read their media again, they're all saying that it seems that the Zionist colony will capitulate to the demands of Hezbollah because that's the only way that America and Europe can get the looted uh, gas of Palestine. 
Interesting. Let me throw something out real quick. Amos Hochstein, he's the guy that the U.S. sent to, I guess, work on this or try to, number one, he was born in Israel. He served in the IDF. So I'm thinking, you know, he's probably leaning in the direction of Israel. Something else you might want to know about uh, Amos Hochstein, just throwing this out there. Interesting. After the United States overthrew the government of Ukraine in 2014, a number of grifters, one being Hunter Biden, went into Ukraine and were on the board of various companies getting paid big bucks, right? Amos Hochstein was one of them. Amos Hochstein, after the U.S. government overthrew the government of Ukraine, Amos Hochstein then, he was with the Obama administration, left the Obama administration and went to Ukraine to be on the board of Naftogaz, which is the Ukrainian state government gas company. So the guy is an old school grifter, particularly when it comes to gas in the first place, Late. Yeah, I mean, it shows also that, uh, you know, clearly the majority of the American public doesn't know this guy's name. I mean, he's so uh, involved in all these machinations of looting the resources of other countries. He's involved in directly in the colonial settler project of uh, the designer's colony. And, and, and of course, he is responsible for war crimes because he, he participated in the uh, Israeli military. Here's another article. It's from People's Dispatch. And this is interesting. Rift emerges between the U.S. and EU over fate of Iran nuclear deal. On the same time that EU officials are insisting on the deal's revival, Brett McGurk, U.S. President Joe Biden's aide on the Middle East, said that the revival is highly unlikely. Sounds again like the U.S. is reminding the EU that you are vassals and you don't get a say here. Late. Yeah, I mean, uh, the whole world knows that the EU are vessels of the United States. I mean, if they don't know it themselves, they, they, I mean, it means they're, they, they've lost their mind. Uh, but truthfully, I think the Iranians already know that the role of the EU has been to just drag the, the negotiations and keep Iran interested in the negotiations while the United States rearranges its forces around the world and rearranges its vessels and their forces in Western Asia because of its uh, interest in confronting China and Russia, as we see uh, in, the, in the last few days. So we, here we have the EU really, uh, you know, probably they are playing this role openly. They want to be, they have been asked to be humiliated publicly by the United States by doing this. This is all part of the game. Uh, and uh, Iran is wiser uh, and Iran is ready for the collapse of these negotiations. So what's interesting to me is the way this seems to be playing out. And that is that Iran is basically negotiating and the EU is the mediator. And Joseph Burrell submits a plan to Iran. Iran is considering the draft proposal. And in the midst of their considering the draft proposal, McGurk says this whole thing is highly unlikely anyway. And blaming Iran for negotiating, which is what it is they're supposed to be doing. So he's really just poisoning the whole process, which gets us back to the point I think you made at the beginning of this whole fiasco. And that is the United States doesn't want this thing to succeed anyway. 
Yes, and the EU is playing the exact role that Hochstein is playing with the negotiations over the gas fields between Lebanon and the Zionist colony, which is the intention is to diffuse the uh, momentum uh, that, uh, let's say, the resistance has in Lebanon and, and in this case in uh, Iran, uh, to uh, allow enough time and space for reorganizing the forces and the efforts that the United States and its vessels have in the region. And, uh, you know, it, this is, it's so uh, out in the open uh, that I don't understand how the uh, United States uh, thinks that it can play this game and some somebody will fall for their uh, stupidity. So obviously it is a losing game. I just, you know, we just saw, of course, Pelosi land in, in Taiwan. Uh, so I don't know really how crazy the United States is these days. I don't think anybody can predict the craziness. What is the response to what's going on in the East with Pelosi and Taiwan? What are you hearing in Beirut? What are you hearing from the people in the Muslim world? Well, I mean, the Syrian government came out with a very strong statement uh, today, uh, number one, uh, reaffirming their their uh, solidarity with China and its one-China policy, condemning the United States for its provocations uh, and this violation of the sovereignty of China with Pelosi landing uh, with this, with her plane. And also warning that the rest of the world is going to suffer even more if there is even just a economic confrontation between China and the United States, you know, let alone a military confrontation over Taiwan. The rest of the world are already reeling from the ramifications of the uh, war in Ukraine. And uh, it's most of the governments in the world are tittering on the edge of collapse. Uh, financially and or starvation of their peoples. Uh, and, you know, uh, nobody is is nobody in the world but the West are egging for this war. How do you see this in terms of the longer term and longer term relations? Because the United States keeps trying to hold itself out as being part of this coalition of the willing. But the longer this thing plays out, the more countries we see turning themselves away from the United States, and they may not necessarily be siding directly with China or Russia, but they are involving themselves in coalitions that are not operating in the best interests of the United States. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, when you go to the African countries, South American countries, Asian countries, and you look in the markets, People are not buying Western products or American products to survive. They may buy something that is luxurious, that is coming from, you know, European fashion once in a while. And if they have the money or buy some American product like an iPhone. But the vast majority of the products that they're consuming, including the raw materials, are coming from the rest of, uh, you know, the East and the South, you know, with, with China being a huge manufacturer of goods and, and, and Russia being a huge exporter of raw materials. And without those two, the rest of the world will collapse there. Nobody is ready to pay higher prices for an American product or a European product 
that is available a cheaper version of uh, from another part of the world. And to try to force the world now to take a side, of course, everybody is going to take a side on their survival. They will not care at all about missing some Gucci bags in their markets. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a very good point, Laith Marouf. We've been talking with Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You can find him on Twitter. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. As it is clear that NATO is an umbrella organization for the United States, most of the world is rejecting the Biden administration's attempt to expand the organization worldwide. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Ray McGovern. He's a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity and a friend of the show. Ray, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you, Garland. As I'm sure you know and is relevant to this story in that certain people, like Liz Truss, want to expand NATO all the way to the Indo-Pacific area, as they call it. Your thoughts on the crisis in Taiwan with Nancy Pelosi, Ray McGovern. Well, as uh, most people know, uh, Nancy dropped in on um, Taiwan about five hours ago. Uh, She's there despite really resolute and very loud Chinese protests. Now, the Chinese clearly decided not to intercept her aircraft or create difficulties for her arrival. But those who think that that China will not react and react very strongly, I think, are sadly mistaken. Uh, This was was an act that will, and I use the term advisedly, provoke the Chinese. It has already provoked them into a rhetoric that we haven't seen for decades. What it will do in the military area remains to be seen. But in my view, the Chinese will react in a very forceful way. And uh, you know what they've said so far is not indicative of what they're going to do. The point I'd like to make here is that the world is looking on, and most people of, of common sense will see that This is not an unprovoked situation, especially when the Chinese react. Uh, It will be provoked. And the the comparison with Ukraine will be obvious to people who know something about world affairs. Uh, The United States says that Putin's attack on Ukraine was unprovoked. Uh, The history of that issue shows that it was surely provoked. So we have the United States provoking uh, the other two main powers in the world and NATO looking on helplessly. Uh, NATO looking on as the kinds of vassal states uh, that they have been for 77 years, for God's sake, you know, since they had the World War II. And, uh, you know, I'm not a good predictor that they're going to wake up sometime and say, you know, this is this is really dumb that we follow U.S. diktat. Now now we're going to get involved in a situation which involves China. And why, why did we invite uh, New Zealand and 
Australia and South Korea and Japan. Why do we invite them to the to the NATO summit? For God's sake, NATO and North Atlantic uh, Treaty Organization. And so, you know, uh, <laughs> it's a forlorn hope. But maybe given the propagation here of a two-front hostility situation, just maybe there's still a chance that some sober-minded people, you know, the Germans first and foremost, uh, they should realize what this all means. Uh, they have a history here, and they have some enlightened statesmen that kept them out of the Iraq war, remember, and kept them uh, in a decent relationship with Russia under people like Willy Brandt and others. So, you know, whether they wake up or not, this is going to redound to at least their second thoughts about how to get involved with the United States as it uh, as it gets, as it provokes, and that's the key word, as it provokes wars in the Atlantic or in that kind of situation we're talking about Ukraine, of course, the proxy war. And now with respect to China, I do think it's more likely than not that shots will be fired uh, after, during the visit of Pelosi, and if I'm wrong at that, the measures that China will take are going to be very painful, first and foremost to Taiwan itself, and later to those people who congregate in NATO, even though they come from the Pacific, like Australia, Japan, South Korea, and New Zealand. And Ray, to your point, it was Henry Kissinger who said, to be an enemy of the U.S. is dangerous, but to be a friend is fatal. <laughs> so to your point, I think there'll be a lot of uh, so-called allies second-guessing their their ongoing relationships with the United States. But I wanted to get to your point about provocation. And I think it's dangerous for uh, Americans to look at China's response so far, or quote-unquote lack thereof, and fall into a false sense of security that the United States was correct and played these cards right. Because China will respond. China has been provoked into a response, but they will respond on their timeline in the manner that they deem to be most advantageous to them, the same way that Russia has responded as it results in Ukraine, but, you know, the United States overthrew the Ukrainian government in 2014, and the United States have been bombing the hell out of the folks in the Donbass since 2014. And it took a long time for Russia to respond. So I think people just need to pay very close attention to the timing of this, because it will be when China sees it to be in their best interest, not immediately to what the United States has done. Your thoughts, sir? I think that's right. And what I would append to that is simply that uh, uh, we have a new alliance between China and Russia. Uh, I was, among others, surprised at how quickly and how unambiguously China came to support Putin's invasion of Ukraine. That was a surprise to all my Chinese analyst friends. It was a surprise to me too. You know, China's fundamental uh, foreign policy principle is non-interference in the affairs of other countries, sovereignty, you know, 
a Westphalia, you know? And all of a sudden they give Putin, well, they give him a waiver on Westphalia, the, the Treaty of Westphalia 1648, which which ended that terrible 30 years war and said, you know, we shouldn't really involve, we shouldn't really invade other countries. Oh, so, so now we have the mirror image of that. Uh, Putin and his spokesman, Piskov, uh, didn't wait, you know, didn't wait at all. As soon as they, they saw that Nancy's plane was, was off the ground, uh, they, they voiced full support for China's uh, situation here. And of course, they rang several changes on the theme of provocation. This is a provocation just like Ukraine, putting intermediate range ballistic missiles in Ukraine, Romania, and uh, and uh, what's the other country they're putting them in? Poland, yeah. Uh, that's a provocation, pure and simple. So we'll have to see. We'll have to see what China does now but uh, the, the worst, the worst uh, fears uh, have been calmed by the fact that uh, they didn't interdict the flight. And what they'll do now, maybe, <laughs> maybe they'll they'll make sure that uh, she stays in Taiwan for the rest of her um, for the rest of her vacation. I don't know. I, I jest, of course, but there will be Chinese action. Uh, and you're right, Wilmer. It will be in their own time. And they have immense economic leverage here. And when we're talking about NATO, NATO countries, you know, the, the trade balance, the trade that existed and still exists between China and those countries, West Germany, for example, that is a weighty factor. And another reason why the, the Europeans ought to come to their senses and say, do we really want this kind of double war in the world? You know, there are two stories, and I'll put them together. One is Vijay Prashad and Consortium News, an excellent outlet that says the world does not want a global NATO. Most of the world rejects NATO's policies and global aspirations and does not wish to divide the international community into outdated Cold War blocks. The other is Evo Morales calls for a global campaign to eliminate NATO. I believe that actions such as this and provocations such as this will drive it home even more. We're seeing Africa more and more start to overtly side with Russia. We're starting to see, you know, more of the global South really coming out saying we don't like NATO, recognizing it as an umbrella organization to the U.S. Your thoughts on NATO's attempted spread and how the global South countries are responding, Ray McGovern. Well, as you know, uh, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has just uh, completed what can be called a triumphal tour of Africa, uh, greeted uh, very respectfully in practically all those countries, and uh, you know, taking credit for the resumption of grain deliveries um, from, from Ukraine and from that part of the world. Uh, I think that most countries looking on uh, are wondering, what is NATO up to? Uh, we have the, uh, the Secretary General of, uh, of NATO saying, look, um, there's a fundamental shift right now. And what it involves is NATO looking at the Pacific, the North Atlantic slash Pacific Treaty Organization. And the most significant threat may still be Russia, but you know what? China 
is the challenge. That's the system. That's the systemic challenge to our interests. Now, I ask you, what kind of challenge is China to NATO? What kind of challenge kind of challenge is China to the United States? Their policy, as far as I, I've been watching this for a while, you know, they don't tend to invade other countries like some other countries do. Uh, they don't. Uh, they don't expand. Uh, and they like to take care of their people. They've brought over a billion people up from poverty in the last couple of decades. Uh, they look inward, and uh, to the degree they're developing their military capability, that has direct. That's a direct response to the threats they perceive from the United States, and now, my God, from NATO. So I think sensible people in Europe, there's probably still some sensible people in Europe, will say, you know, what is this stuff? Is this simply to produce and sell more arms so that the, the fat cats in the West can, get, whether they're in Europe or whether in the United States, can get still richer. Uh, is this profit? Does this benefit our country, our people? And, you know, it, it just seems so contrived and so stretched to describe China as a challenge to NATO that I think, you know, maybe I'm wrong again. I think I finally dawn on Europeans uh, that, you know, they, they've been taken to the to the cleaners here, but more so since, as uh, Prashad uh, points out, their concern is about heating their homes this winter. And, you know, how those economist geniuses that it advised the U.S. administration to, you know, so to to do what it did in terms of economic sanctions, where uh, Mr. Putin has his hand on the spigot for the natural gas and, and the oil. My God, they're going to have to live with that. So this could be the beginning, as you suggest, Garland, of a real think, a double what the Germans call a denkpause, a, a, a pause to think and, and real real realign their thoughts as to whether they really want to be tied so tightly to this hegemon uh, to their own detriment. Yeah, I uh, definitely think you're right there, Ray. I think as it is, if nothing else happens, they're looking at massive social unrest. As here uh, within the last two days, Joseph Burrell has admitted that some countries may literally run out of gas this winter. You know, we could be looking at literally people freezing to death, et cetera. So they've, they've got problems. They don't need more trouble from China. We've been talking with Ray McGovern. He's a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity and a friend of the show. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The U.S. has claimed that al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri was killed by a U.S. drone. Joining us now to discuss this story, we have John Kiriakou. He's a journalist. He's an author. He's a whistleblower. And he is co-host of Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. John, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. 
The Washington Post reports news that Ayman al-Zahari, the leader of al-Qaeda, was killed in Kabul in a CIA drone operation over the weekend, drew celebration for Democrats and Republicans in the United States, as well as from some foreign governments. You know, John, when I see this, I just feel like during the Obama administration, every month or two, we killed the number two person in al-Qaeda. And it was kind of celebrated like, yay, we did it. But in reality, it never seemed to quite affect the ability of al-Qaeda to continue to operate. Your thoughts on all of this, John Kiriakou? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I can't tell you how many times we killed the purported number three in al-Qaeda. <laughs> there had to be a hundred of them over the, over the last 20 years. Um, this is different. This is different because Ayman al-Zawahiri was the leader of al-Qaeda uh, for the last decade plus, ever since the killing of Osama bin Laden. He was the one who kept the group together, and he did that in a couple of different ways. You know, we, we were making a joke uh, off air just before we started this about uh, Political Misfits, a, a show that I do on, on Sputnik. And, um, and uh, Wilmer uh, made the joke that, uh, that bin Laden and Zawahiri were political misfits. They actually were. Um, Zawahiri had religious credentials. He was also a seasoned terrorist. He was the founder of a group called Egyptian Islamic Jihad. He spent many years in prison for his role in the assassination of Egyptian President Anwar Sadat. And he was released as part of an amnesty. Immediately upon getting out of prison, he created EIJ. And then and then he merged Egyptian Islamic Jihad with this new group called Al-Qaeda in the early 1990s. Now, Osama bin Laden had plenty of money, but he had no religious credentials at all. Nobody recognized him as an imam, as a religious leader, as a teacher, a scholar, nothing at all. He was just a rich guy who wanted to blow things up and kill people. And so they complemented each other in that way. Osama bin Laden... Um, was the one who would come up with the broad strategies of, of uh, attacking the United States and impacting its economy. It was Zawahiri that worked with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed to actually come up with a plan that would become September 11th. So this one's a very big deal. The CIA was looking for him for a very, very long time. You know, there are some stereotypes within the United States when you look at Osama bin Laden and you look at uh, al-Zawahiri, that they're just these random terrorists where, in fact, I think Osama is Saudi and from a very prominent Saudi family. Mm -hmm. Al-Zawahiri is Egyptian and from a very wealthy Egyptian family. In fact, if you talk about the religious bona fides, didn't... uh, al-Zawahiri go all the way back to the Muslim Brotherhood. Oh, yes. I think he cut his teeth in the Muslim Brotherhood. So my point being, you can't be dismissive about these gentlemen. You can't be dismissive about how deep their ties run and the fact that they are both children of families from American allies. You're absolutely right. You know, there was a small article about a week ago in the New York Post saying that a member of the bin Laden family had donated money to the mayor's uh, campaign, and he was under pressure to give it back. Well, why? Why would he be under pressure to give it back? The bin Laden family is one of the most important and prominent uh, families in Saudi Arabia, and one of the wealthiest. 
they're a construction family. Their father, Abdurrahman uh, bin Laden, who's long dead, had more than 100 sons and uh, created a, a construction firm that became the biggest on the Arabian Peninsula. They build airports and they build long-distance highways and they build hospitals and shipping ports and, you know, big ticket items. Uh, they're also staunchly pro-U.S., there are bin Ladens that live in New York, in Beverly Hills, in Orlando, Florida, in Philadelphia. There are dozens of bin Ladens uh, in this country. Uh, and, and they broke with their brother many, many years ago, before, well before September 11th. The Zawahiri family is different. Even though they had money, they were all very religious. They were all very closely tied to a traditional uh, culture. They wanted their children to go to only Islamic universities, uh, and even then, only Islamic universities in, in Egypt. So it was a different kind of, of upbringing, where Osama bin Laden was the black sheep of his family, and Ayman al-Zawahiri was the child that his family had always wanted. Let me ask you this. Also, when we discuss the fact that both of these people are from prominent families, prominent groups in their countries, isn't that also a problem with addressing terrorism in that, you know, there are a lot of people because a lot of the jihadi terrorism is, you know, in its foundation, it's founded in religious concepts, that there are a lot of very, very rich and powerful people in countries and in the Middle East and in governments in the Middle East who feel like... Like religiously, it's their duty to support these jihadis, and it makes it near impossible to address. Oh, Garland, that's such an important point. And I wish that I had heard somebody say that on CNN and MSNBC and Fox in the last 24 hours. And I haven't. But that's a very important point. And it's why we should have been investigating the Saudi government starting on September the 12th, 2001. We should have been investigating the Saudi royal family and their involvement in financing the 9-11 attacks or the people who either participated in or provided support for the 9-11 attacks, because you're exactly right. A lot of people, a lot of important people in positions of authority in government in the Middle East believe that it's their duty to God to support groups like al-Qaeda. Absolutely. Talk about basically the practical aspects. This strike occurred at 9.48 in the evening. They say that a drone fired two Hellfire missiles at uh, Zahariri as he stepped onto the balcony of his safe house in Kabul. And it's also a matter of culture in terms of protecting guests in your country. So some people would say, well, look at Afghanistan and how crazy it is, blah, blah, blah. But he was a guest. And in their cultures, you have to protect guests in your country. Yeah, this is something that we struggled with in, uh, in 2001, in, in September and October of 2001. It's a part of Islamic culture that if someone asks for, um, for hospitality or they ask for safe haven, they can't be denied. If you walk up to a random house in the Middle East and knock on the door and say, may I have a glass of water? They have to give you a glass of water. May I have a place to stay? They have to give you a place, a place to stay. It's just a part of the culture. Now, in 2001, we told the Taliban government, 
we want Osama bin Laden. He's the one that did these 9-11 attacks, and we want you to turn him over to us. Well, they're duty-bound to not turn him over to us because he had asked for protection. And so as part of their culture, they had to provide it. Uh, and then we went to war. Well, it, they're arguing the same situation now. Hang on a second, John. Let me ask for one point of clarity there. Yes. Because I had heard that we did exactly what you said, but then they also came back and said, if you give us the evidence, give us the proof that he's done what you claim he's done, we will turn him over to you. And we said no. Uh, almost. Okay. Uh, almost. Please clarify. Uh, yes. They, they did ask for the evidence, and they offered to turn him over to a third country to face trial. Right. That, I'm sorry. And we you're said right. that that's right. not the way our judicial system works. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Because you're that's it. You're right. Yeah, sure. Sure. Wilmer. But you know what? I, I think that uh, and I don't think I'm going too far out on a limb saying this. Um, I, I don't think we ever wanted these guys to come to the United States and face trial. Thank you. Ever. I, and, and, you know, that's why that's why when we when we finally located bin Laden in 2011, there was no attempt to to snatch him and bring him back to face justice. Uh, they were under orders to just shoot him and kill him. Because can you imagine the can of worms that a trial would have uh, entailed? Correct. Uh, and then where do you put him? You put him in a, in a supermax, and, and then he becomes this symbol, this international symbol of, of martyrdom. We didn't want anything like that. It's the same reason why we didn't turn over his body to his family or to the Saudi government. We threw it overboard in the Arabian Sea. Because we didn't want it to be, uh, to be a, a rallying point where, where people go to pay uh, homage to it. So I think we had the same situation with Zawahidi. Apparently, the CIA was able to locate him in April of this year. Um, they watched him through May, June, and July to determine his, his uh, lifestyle pattern. It turned out that he would wait every day for the sun to go down and he'd go out on the balcony. Because remember, living like this is like living in prison, in solitary confinement. You're in a safe house and you can't ever go outside during the daytime, ever. For any reason, it's like being in prison. And so he would go out onto the balcony every evening once the sun went down. Well, apparently, and I should preface this by saying, we only know these details because this is what the White House has released to us. This is the official story. This is the CIA's story. So I don't know if it's true. It's just what we're being told. Um, they, uh, the CIA and uh, DNI and others would meet with the president regularly. Apparently, the president was insistent that nobody else be killed. He was in this house with his wife, with his daughter, and with his daughter's children. And so uh, the CIA figured out a way to kill him when he was alone on the balcony. They assured the president that nobody else would be killed. And, uh, and so he gave the go-ahead this past weekend. You know, the only thing that really bothers me about this mainly is that, I mean, there's a number of things, but a big one is that people are going to celebrate this and then they'll be like, see, the drone thing is good. We got a CIA guy. Oh Therefore, we should use it all the time. And then they go blowing up, killing a family of 10 again, like we did in Afghanistan every other week. And we justify it with something like this, because one time they got the guy they wanted and didn't get other people, John. I said exactly. One quick question to yes, that. Please. How surgical is a Hellfire missile? Go ahead. 
Oh, both great, great questions. Uh, Garland, I said exactly the same words on my own show two hours ago. You know, I, the world is a better place without Ayman Zawahiri in it. I'm glad he's dead. He was responsible for the deaths of thousands of innocent Americans. He's better dead in my book. At the same time, my regret is that Americans are going to say, look what the drones did. This was amazing. We killed the one guy we set out to kill. We need more of these drones. Yeah, I gave an interview last night to Al Jazeera, and they asked three different ways why we didn't fly in a snatch team to get him and pull him out. And three different times I had to tell them because we were trying to protect American lives. We don't care about anybody else's lives. It was just American lives. And if you send in a drone and 100 people get killed, if none of them are Americans, then the American public doesn't care. That's what I told them. And, and I really believe that, uh, that to be true. All right. Well, thanks a lot. We've been talking with John Kiriakou. He's a journalist. He's an author. And he's a host of a great show right here on Radio Sputnik every day called Political Misfits. John, what time are you on? Uh, Eastern time? We're on uh, noon to two, every day, Monday through Friday, Eastern Time. On Radio Sputnik, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Google has hired a large number of former CIA employees. Also, Rumble's lawsuit against Google has been cleared to continue as a federal judge finds probable cause that the tech giant may have violated Section 2 of the Sherman Act. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Dr. Margaret Flowers. She's the co-editor of Popular Resistance and a longtime activist. Dr. Margaret Flowers, welcome back to The Critical Hour. It's great both of you. Thank you. In Mint Press News, Alan McLeod writes, Google, one of the largest and most influential organizations in the modern world, is filled with ex-CIA agents studying employment websites and database. Mint Press has ascertained that the Silicon Valley giant has recently hired dozens of professionals from the CIA in recent years. Dr. Flowers, your thoughts? Well, it's not surprising. Um, and Alan does an excellent job of reporting on specifically who is working for Google from the CIA, uh, because the founders of, CIA, of uh, Google actually come from the security state. And we know that the CIA has, you know, its people all throughout institutions in the United States. So that an eye on what's going on doesn't make it right. I think that people should be concerned about that because a number of years ago, there was a report coming out uh, in, in the United States looking at kind of the state of war, and they were concerned that the military was concerned that they were losing control of the narrative. So putting their folks, their national security state folks, into these uh, media platforms, these tech platforms, allows them to have greater control over the narrative to our detriment as the public. And you're right. Alan does a fantastic job of identifying exactly who these people are. What does it mean to you when these individuals are, to a great degree, in what is known as the trust and safety department, the part of Google that decides specifically what content is allowed on the platform. I 
I think it undermines the integrity of those words <laughs> you know, to have uh, folks like that in charge of, you know, what we are allowed to see. And we've known for a while, you know, that and we've experienced popular resistance. Other um, independent media outlets like ourselves have experienced it a number of years ago. We just suddenly took a deep dive in the in the traffic to our sites. And a lot of that had to do with how Google had changed its, its algorithms so that our content was being suppressed. And we, you know, we still have that experience today on platforms like Twitter and Facebook as well. You know, what they're going to do is present these um, independent voices that aren't towing the U.S. imperialist line, the U.S. corporatist line. They're trying to prevent the public from having access to us. And I think that we should all be very concerned about that because it is, you know, we know that information is power. And without our access to that information and knowing what's going on, uh, we don't have the power to change it. In their 2013 book, The New Digital Age, then-Google CEO Eric Schmidt and director of Google Ideas Jared Cohen, formerly of the U.S. State Department, wrote about how companies like theirs were fast becoming the U.S. empire's most potent weapon in retaining Washington's control over the modern world. And that's the other part of it. We see, you know, I recall an article a while back that we covered here on the show wherein Twitter had been planning on doing some maintenance and shutting down some things so they could do some maintenance on their site. And there were protests in Iran. The State Department then called Twitter and said, we need you to keep it up so you can be used to enhance these protests in Iran. Margaret. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, I'm laughing because, you know, this is a tool that the that the U.S. government uses all around the world. They even go to countries and train particularly youth in these social media. We saw this in Nicaragua, in Venezuela, where they, you know, the U.S. attempted coups there. And then they had this whole kind of group of particularly young people who were then putting out completely social media, portraying the country as if it was run by some sort of dictator and that the government was being violent against them when it was actually the opposition, the right-wing fascist opposition that were perpetrating the violence and literally killing these in these countries. So it, it is, it's one of the tools of regime change of U.S. imperialism. Um, and so that doesn't surprise me that the State Department, you know, has that control over it. In fact, Later on in the piece, Alan talks about a spook in every department. Google employs ex-CIA agents in a myriad of different departments. They're in risk lead in workforce solutions. They're in senior human resources. They're in executive communications management. So basically what he's saying is the CIA has infiltrated, and I'll put that word in quotes because they were direct hires and intentional hires, all aspects and in all facets of Google. Yeah, I mean, the, the Google executives are part of this whole class of people in the United States, the very wealthy class, who understand that to maintain their power in a situation where capitalism is failing the people, where our you know human needs are not being met while the corporate People and the wealthy people are, are making huge amounts of money. Inequality is growing. They understand that, you know, this group, they protect each other. They work together, you know, and that's what this is part of, kind of that, you know, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theory, but there's just the way that things work in this country. You know, the wealthy work together to protect their wealth. 
You know, the other thing I think is interesting is in this article, they talk about how NQTEL, the CIA's venture capitalist arm, was a major shareholder in Google until 2005. And when you look at these connections, here's the other part of it. Google and YouTube, which is also owned by Google, they do a lot of restricting of speech. And the argument is, well, this is a private industry. This is a private corporation. But when you look at, you know, their origins, you look at their hires. It seems to me that one could make an argument that the government is doing an end around the Constitution by putting people in Google, by having control over Google, so they can credibly argue that it's not the government suppressing speech, even though the government is, in effect, in the background, ensuring that the narratives that they don't want to get out there are being suppressed, Margaret. Right, As I said, they they all work hand in hand to to protect each other. And that's why we fought so hard in 2014, 2015 uh, for net neutrality, Uh, fighting for I mean, the the Internet is a powerful platform and they know that it's it's a it's a democratized or should be a democratized platform where able to put their voices out there, to put their their research, their ideas. And then, you know, if it was truly transparent and democratic, then the public can decide who they, you know, who they want to follow, who they believe. And, and that's too dangerous because that gives people power to reach a lot of people. And that's why it's that is now being used, uh, tightly controlled more and more. And the, and the censorship just all around, you know, I think is an issue that we need to be concerned about. Especially, I mean, looking at the situation right now with the uh, with the conflict in Ukraine, you know, people like Ray McGovern, um, you know, very credible ex-CIA analyst, former White House, you know, intelligence briefing uh, person, advisor. Uh, he is now on a list of people that are spreading, uh, spreading, quote unquote, Russian propaganda because he's providing a different narrative than what the security state wants people to I think we need to be concerned about this in a, in a number of realms. Google's argument for dismissing an antitrust lawsuit by YouTube competitor Rumble, a haven for unfettered discussions about COVID-19, election fraud, Ukraine-Russia relations, has so perplexed a federal judge that he took only eight pages to reject Google's motion. What they've said is that now that Rumble is in a lawsuit is going to be able to get a number of documents regarding the algorithms that are used to suppress particular perspectives that are not welcome in the mainstream. Your thoughts about this, Margaret Flowers? Well, I think it's important that there are entities like Google that have the resources to be able to take on, uh, you know, corporations like Google. And this is not the only lawsuit, but it can be beneficial to all of us to see what's in that discovery, to see what practices Google actually uses to suppress other, you know, uh, platforms that might be actually trying to compete and allowing that kind of free speech that Google is not allowed. And I think what's also important here is that last month a federal judge ordered that social media companies, basically Meta or Facebook, Twitter and YouTube, they have to turn over documents alleging collusion. So it's one thing for these organizations or these companies to be operating independently, but now you've got basically those that are controlling or the major players in the social media space are colluding. That ratchets up the level of concern in my book. No, it really does. And I think that, um, you know, again, it speaks to this kind of like entity that works 
together to protect their narrative, to keep people um, from understanding what's really going on. I think that the situation is so interesting because we see, I see intelligent people kind of buying the corporate media narrative uh, without questioning it, without actually, you know, just going completely along with it. This corporate media should have any credibility it comes to waging wars, you know, around the world. Like, we haven't we learned our lesson already? Haven't we learned, you know, with Iraq and Afghanistan already that this is, you know, this is just another arm of the military-industrial complex? And I think, Margaret, this is a critical lawsuit because if it is determined, if it is shown collusion between the government and Google in suppressing particular voices, then, as I discussed a few moments ago, that becomes an issue of free speech. That could become a broader issue on social media, you know, in the courts regarding social media companies, et cetera. And it sets up the potential for people to be able to pursue legal action against the government officials, government agencies, et cetera, who are doing this and deliberately hiding that, which gives you your, you know, your intent, Margaret. Right. No, it important precedent. And what we want to see is a development of other platforms like Rumble that people can go to it and actually, you know, be able to, we want to be able to search engines, you know, that are, that are not censoring information. We want to have platforms where people can put their content up and not worry about it being so that, you know, so that people can have access to it and let, you know, let people develop that media literacy on their own to determine what makes sense and what doesn't. We are, we are, you know, <laughs> we can up intelligence level, right, and and our, our media literacy and uh, decide for ourselves if what we're reading and seeing, you know, makes sense and seems accurate. So I think, you know, just overall, it's really positive to see uh, this exposure for people of what's actually going on inside of these big tech platforms to see entities that are challenging it. I think that moving forward, we really need to continue to push for Internet uh, to be a democratized platform, to be uh, transparent, people should have access to this information. They should know what voices are suppressed and what is being suppressed, and then they should be able to decide for themselves. So I think that we need to continue to fight these, you know, these 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 telecommunications giants, these tech giants, uh, to open up this this platform to much more popular control. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. We've been interviewing Dr. Margaret Flowers. Go to popularresistance.org for more information. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you are informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out.